Radio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Inigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually, that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Just over seven months ago, on February 1st, 2021, the world witnessed a shockingly audacious military coup in Myanmar, in which the democratically elected National League for Democracy was deposed. Leader Aung San Suu Kyi was placed under arrest, and civilian resistance was immediate, insistent, and inspiring. A week after, I talked to three Prio researchers about what was happening. As the months have passed, violence against protesters has become common, and yet protests and other forms of defiance have continued. Today, I'm talking again to these three researchers, getting their impressions and updates after seven months. First, Stein Tunnison will guide us through an update on what has happened with the government and the military since February 1st, and what life looks like for Myanmar citizens. Then, through Dostopnas, we'll share some artistic responses through poetry and music, and talk about how ordinary people are voicing their dissent. Finally, Marta Nilsson will discuss the challenges to civil society and humanitarian organizations in this new situation, one which resembles closely the landscape pre-2011. Truda Stopnes is a doctoral researcher on the Inspire Project at PRIO. The Inspire Project studies the roles of artists in creative practice in and after violent conflict, exploring what inspires and motivates those engaged in creative practice and how artistic expressions inspire and move others into action for social justice. In her doctoral research, Truda focuses on art and creative practice in Myanmar. Since the coup, Thruda has concentrated on following the resistance against the military takeover by exploring the creative ways artists respond. Marta Nilsson is a senior researcher at PRIO. Her research focuses on the ethnicity, religion, nation-building nexus of political and violent conflicts in Southeast Asia, with a particular focus on Myanmar and Thailand. One of her particular areas of interest is civil society movements in peacebuilding and democratization. Stein Tennyson is a research professor at PRIO. He primarily focuses on East Asia, including Myanmar, in his research. He previously led the project Social Media and Armed Conflict, the Case of Myanmar. I will note that since we recorded this episode, the National Unity Government declared, quote, defensive war and urged civilians to rise up against the military. That was just two days ago, September 7th, and so far there's not much to report. Stein and I talked before that development, so we don't address it in our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Stein. Thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to. Um, so you're going to do the very helpful task of um, recapping and explaining what has been happening in Myanmar uh, since February, and I'm sure you'll also bring in some historical perspectives as well, which is your prerogative. Um, so let's start, first of all, with just what occurred in February in Myanmar. On the 1st of February, the newly elected National Assembly was going to meet but in the morning just as they were preparing to go to the National Assembly building the military carried out a coup and arrested Aung San Suu Kyi and all the other leaders of the National League for Democracy who had won elections in November by a landslide. After this there was enormous resistance in the population with a civil disobedience movement with strikes with demonstrations in the street and then this was met with enormous lot of violence from the uh, Tatmadaw, the military forces. Uh, atrocities were committed. As a result of this 
many people have formed so-called People's Defense Forces that fight against the junta, the military junta established in the coup, also in core regions of Myanmar where there has not been armed fighting in the past and there has also been an upsurge of fighting in some of the ethnic minority areas. country is now in very dire straits, badly harmed by the COVID-19 pandemic. There is com- contest between the warring parties over vaccines and helps to the victims of the pandemic. The economy is going down, people are out of work, uh, lots of people's uh, IDPs, internally displaced persons in camps. The situation is immensely tragic. Yes, it's a very bleak picture um, that you painted. Um, And so I will encourage people to listen to the podcast that we made immediately after the coup that happened. Um, And that podcast was very spur of the moment and you were were also part of that. Uh, So if they want to get a more in-depth recap of immediately the aftermath, um, they can listen to that. And of course, after this segment, we're going to be hearing from Turuda about the artistic interventions and protests that especially young people have been a part of and from Marta on the uh, humanitarian aid and civil society perspectives. But before we talk about what has happened since February, I just want to ask you, was it surprising when this coup occurred? It surprised me completely. It surprised most other people also uh, because the army was already very powerful within the government. They held full control of the security sector. Could the army chief could uh, select three ministers of home affairs, borders. And uh, the elections had been so clear, so it was quite egregious and shocking that you could have a coup so rightly after an election, one by one party by a landslide. There were some who predicted it anyway, because they had heard statements made by the defense chief or senior general Min Aung Laing, where he talked about failures of the 2008 constitution, hinted that it might be repealed and that there might be a need to do something. And those who listened to this carefully took it seriously and therefore understood that a coup was on its way. But many people have wondered afterwards, why did an army that already have so much power go to the step of removing also Aung San Suu Kyi, who had been quite army friendly, actually? And can you just briefly uh, explain who the major players are in this case? I mean, you just mentioned Aung San Suu Kyi and Min Aung Lang. Um, maybe you can just quickly give us a little more information so that the listeners will have some more context for that. First, there is the army called the Tatmadaw, which consists of army, navy, air forces, and also police forces. And this Tatmadaw has been, in a way, the state itself in Myanmar for many years, until it opened up for reforms in 2010 to 2011, and held uh, national elections, rigged in 2010, less rigged in 2015 and 2020, and uh, let prisoners uh, be released from prison, uh, allowed uh, quite a lot of press freedom, media freedom, and also a digital revolution by inviting companies in to make bids for establishing uh, telecom uh, services in the country. 
which we will be discussing in the second bonus episode. Which yes, will come but up this tomorrow. was actually also an essential part of the reform period because the young people today who fight against the coup makers, they have grown up in a period where you had access to information through the internet in a way that no one has had before in Myanmar ever. Mm. People did not mostly have access to any kind of telephones before the mobile telephones were introduced massively from 2013 onwards. Uh, in this uh, system, the Tatmadaw retained uh, considerable power because they could appoint 25% of all elected members of assemblies, both on the union level in the capital Naypyidaw and in all the 14 regions and states that make up Myanmar, they could also appoint three uh, government, essential government ministers, and they had a majority in the National Security Council. Hmm. In a first period, up until 2015, from 2011 to 2015, the president was a former general <laughs> by name of Tain Sein. He was an important actor at the time and the one responsible for much of the opening of Myanmar to the rest of the world and to basic freedoms. Mm. Uh, but he uh, lost the elections in 2015 and was went out of history in a way in the country. Uh, another general, Schwimmann, was at the time uh, until 2015 uh, the president of the National Assembly and played an essential role there in a kind of rivalry with the president. So you had two generals who played a role between 2011 and 2015. Mm. Schwemann later allied himself with the winner of the 2015 elections, which is the main, has been the main player in the country, the lady as she is called, Aung San Suu Kyi daughter of Aung San, who was the founder of the Myanmar army back in the time when it fought against British colonialism and for a short time during the end of the Second World War against Japan and became in a way the founding main founding block for the union of Myanmar. So she sees herself as having the heritage from her father and a right to rule. She was the head of the National League for Democracy, a party that had been formed back in 1990 for the national elections at that time, and which won the elections in 1990. In April 2012, she won a by-election and became a member of parliament. So be, she became an opposition politician. And the NLD, the National League for Democracy, widened its support and it won the elections as, with an astounding majority in 2015. At that time, because of that election, you got in a way a state with two heads. One military led by the uh, commander-in-chief of the armed forces, Min Aung Laing. Min Aung Laing, the one who runs Myanmar today, a relatively young general, much younger than the generals I talked about before, and who then became uh, gen the armed commander-in-chief in 2011. Uh, and he was still running all the parts of government that the military controlled. Plus, the military also had 
autonomy financially. No one had any insight into the money earnings and the spendings of the military because they controlled it more or less secretly. On the other hand, you got a civilian government, a new civilian government with a president who was a kind of, he was installed there but by Aung San Suu Kyi because she could not become president. The constitution that the military had introduced in 2008 forbid anyone with a foreign citizen as husband or children who were not Myanmar citizens from becoming president. So she could not become president. That rule had been put there, probably to some extent at least, in order to prevent her from be ever becoming president. Mm. But she found a way. She found a way to get the National Assembly to create a new position called state councillor. And the state, as state councillor, she was able to have her secretariat and to de facto run the government, although she was not president, sometimes through the president, who was a very close confidant of hers. And after running the government for five years, there were national elections again in November last year, and her party won with an even greater majority than the first time. And this was what Min Aung Laing, as head of the armed forces, could not accept. So I think he probably decided at the time of the election last year that he would carry out a coup and prevent Aung San Suu Kyi from keeping the power and perhaps further reducing the military power. What do you think were the real reasons for this coup? I have wondered very much about that and I have come up with three hypotheses. Um, the first is that it had to do with the economic interests of the military. The military in Myanmar has for a long time been able to fund itself and also to enrich the senior generals by having access to a lot of income from various illegal activities, such as the export of jade, the drugs trade, uh, exports of timber, other minerals and so on. And this has been out of any state budget. So the old generals who were running Myanmar in the time of the military junta until 2010 became very rich. The young generals who are represented by Commander-in-Chief Min Aung Lang have not had the same chance to enrich themselves. And I think they were now seeing how Aung San Suu Kyi was trying to officialize the income streams so that the military could no longer uh, enrich its senior leaders in the same way. So the coup came there in to, pro to protect the privileges and the prosperity, future prosperity of the officer corps. My other uh, reason is personal ambition. I think Min Aung Laing was seeing that his time as Commander-in-Chief was running out. It should end in July this year and then he would lose power. And he was afraid that Aung San Suu Kyi would then be the one who could decide who would be the next Commander-in-Chief. So in order to perpetuate his own power, he made the coup and removed her from power, arresting her. The third reason I have thought of is that the military has actually experienced a kind of isolation which may have been unsound given all its powers. 
this isolation came from the fact that the party it supported, the USDP as it's called, did so poorly in the elections. So the military was represented politically only by the appointees of the military, not by real politicians. And also the, the older generals who played a role in the 2011-15 to 15 period, they lost power. In addition, the military was guilty of a genocide or crimes against humanity against the Rohingya in 2016-17. to 17. And that made the military isolated also internationally, losing any kind of international respect. So in this situation of isolation, uh, the military felt that it, the, the, all its powers and its position as the main institution, as they thought, in the Union of Myanmar was kind of pulverized. They were isolated from their own people. So the only way out of that was to re-establish power by making, using arms and making a coup. So going back to, to February, immediately after the coup, of course, like you said, we saw a lot of very disturbing violence. At first, um, protesters were, were mostly rebuffed non-violently, but it quickly deteriorated. Um, and there's been a, some deaths. There's been a lot of um, violent kind of, I guess you could say, uprisings and, and fights between the military and um, civilians. So since then... What has changed in Myanmar? I mean, what is life like there now for, for normal citizens? Life is extremely uh, difficult um, because people are out to work. The banks uh, can only handle small amounts of money. Uh, people have difficulty getting uh, buying food. Uh, people are storing things for the future. Many people have ended up in uh, camps. There has been increased fighting. There is fear of the armed forces. And all of this amidst the situation of a terrible pandemic, where officially a little over 15,000 people have died so far from the pandemic. But probably that figure is much too low the real figures are much higher. So Myanmar is now desperately in need of some kind of um, health intervention from abroad. Uh, and uh, one thing that the international society should do in Myanmar is to impress on the parties that are fighting in the country some kind of health authority that could help navigate uh, the country out of the pandemic, help providing uh, vaccines so that you no longer have a competition among the rival factions for vaccinating people. Uh, it's an extremely dire situation, but unfortunately there are few signs of improvement. Things are rather getting worse. Well, I think we will leave it at that. Thank you, Stein. And uh, I look forward to hopefully uh, getting an update from you uh, in the coming months. Mm. Thank you.
thank you for coming back to the podcast, Thruda. And uh, we're going to discuss today art and artistic uh, responses to the coup. So when we talked back in February, when things had just happened, um, you contributed some thoughts on this. And of course, you have contacts on the ground there and also uh, from the diaspora. Um, But what has been happening since then? What kind of responses have there been, especially considering that the response from the military has become more violent? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, so last time I was here... I guess it was about 10th of February or it was less than two weeks since the military coup and already we'd seen like a lot of creativity in the protest. So I thought I'd pick up from there, from the beginning. Um, Yeah, so from that time, artists were really active both on social media, but also on the streets. So On the streets, painters created artworks, uh, musicians played concerts, poets recited poetry, and so on. And yeah, when it was still active on the the streets with thousands of people outside every day, it was really creative and a lot of, um, yeah, so much creativity going on. And artists also created protest art, especially of the... Or, for example, of the three-finger salute that has become like a pro-democracy sign in in Asia. And this protest art also spread on social media. People printed it out and then brought them to the streets as protest signs anyway. Um, So at this time, artists were kind of part of mobilizing and creating attention and momentum for the pro-democracy movement. And I... Uh, I know that we might have listeners all over the world, but I wanted to mention as well that if anyone else in Oslo, Norway is listening, I've been part of organizing this exhibition that is called Voices from Burma Spring Revolution, which presents work created by 14 artists made after the coup. Um, so the exhibition is it's organized by this small organization called Myanmar Basar, which is set up by me together with three other people called Ida, Hanna and Frida. Um, so yeah, it's possible to visit it at Torgata Oslo until September 12th, so this Sunday. And there you can see like uh, illustrations, photography and paintings, um, collages all made by amazing artists in Myanmar after the coup. Yeah, so I'm happy to have used this opportunity to spread uh, the word about the exhibition. And then I also wanted to talk about um, the role of musicians since after the coup, um, who also have been very active in creating work in response to what is happening. And for example, I can mention Rap Against Junta, which is a group of rappers, producers, DJs, and graffiti artists who create re- art in response to the coup. And I thought we could listen to a song by the artist who calls himself 882021, uh, who is part of Rap Against Junta. And the song is called Lee Coup. And I recommend everyone also to check it on, out on YouTube because the um, illustrations are really powerful as well. Yeah, we'll add a link um, in the description of the podcast episode. And thank you to the artist for giving permission for us to play the song. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're going to play that now, and then we'll pick back up on our conversation. Okay. 
So we just played Lee Koo. Uh, that's the name of the song. And the artist is 88 uh, 2021. Um, and we played it for the listeners. But in the meantime, we were also playing the song here and watching the video. And I mean, it's a really powerful song. And it also has a great beat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but of course, that's <laughs> secondary to, to the purpose of the song. Um, but I saw in the visuals, and I hope that people go watch the video, that that showed um, someone banging what looked like a, maybe a bowl or a pot. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, Truda, can you explain the significance of that image? Yeah, yeah. So the banging of pots and pans, that was kind of like one of the first uh, protests kind of methods they used from the beginning. So even before people went outside to the streets in Myanmar, it didn't take many days until everyone was out on the streets. But I think from the very first day, people started banging pots and pans at eight o'clock every evening as a way to protest so uh, traditionally it's like a way to um, scare away evil spirits so they're kind of like scaring away the evil spirits that means the military Um, so there were so many video clips uh, every evening from the streets streets just like filled with um, so much noise from kitchen utensils, uh, and I've asked people now if that's still it's if it's still going on, you know. And some people else, people are saying yes, we're still doing that. Some people are saying you can't do that anymore because uh, they will come into your home. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what other responses have artists brought in the last few months? Yeah, um, yeah. so since the military coup, uh, over a thousand people have been killed um, by the military or police forces. So another way that artists have responded is kind of like um, responding to that violence or showing that violence through their artworks. And specifically, I wanted to talk about how artists are they are kind of honoring fallen heroes through their artworks. And one example of this is the first protester who was killed in the, in the protest. So that was also early. On 9th of February, there was a woman who was shot on the streets in Naypyidaw, the capital. And 
at that time we didn't really know how she was and violence hadn't escalated yet but she ended up dying 10 days later in the hospital so after that there was so much artwork uh, relating to her death like honoring her for being kind of like a martyr you know and since then there's been so many people killed and so many um, heroes as well that people are documenting and sharing um, yeah and violence has escalated of course and people continued to protest on the streets uh, still when the military was shooting and killing people um, but now um, street protests has kind of um, slowed down and there are some um, flash protests mm -hmm. um, but the huge mobilization has stopped but yeah um, there are so many examples of these fallen heroes that are honored through artworks and I wanted to mention one more example which is kind of a newer example and also it shows a bit more of how the situation is uh, right now in Myanmar um, so on August 10th uh, it's about a month ago now there was an incident that received a lot of attention in Yangon a group of young people jumped from an apartment building so the reason for them jumping was that security forces raided the apartment they were in and these young people they tried to escape but the only way they could escape was by jumping out of the building so they basically chose to jump instead of face arrest by the police and that also shows like <laughs> that they're scared of being arrested because of what that can lead to so this horrible incident did quickly spread on social media and immediately we saw all of these illustrations to honor them like the five fallen heroes um, and also other artists not just illustrators they contributed to to honor these people so I wanted to kind of end my segment or if you don't have any other questions but we could listen to a poem written by a young Burmese poet called Sophie and she shares her poems on the Instagram page Sophine underscore poetry and I recommend everyone also to check out her her work and I asked her to read her poem called To the Martyrs which is dedicated to those young people who jumped off from the building. Yeah, so we're going to listen to that right now. And um, and again, thank you to, well, to both the artists that allowed us to share their work mm -hmm. today. And yeah. thank you, Truda, for, for talking about this. Thank you for having me. To the martyrs, death must have been more liberating. After all, hell is right where we are living. The world has become too toxic to inhabit anyway. Perhaps the evolution is still taking place, whereas people, drenched in self-interest, turn into savages each day. As long as they exist, they remain our foes. Until then, justice will be expensive for our pure souls. When you get another life to live in, I pray that you will witness the long-awaited justice win. As for now, you've set yourselves free. May you rest well in power and peace. Welcome back to the podcast, Marta. Um, we 
have talked a few other times and of course not on the podcast about Myanmar and um, and I really appreciate all your insights and many many both blog posts and articles and all of your incredible research um, today we're gonna have a very very short criminally short segment um, but we're going to talk about humanitarian organizations civil society and Myanmar in the context of the coup now um, several months after we we've talked um, previously so um First of all, I will say that things are moving very quickly in Myanmar and uh, we should just contextualize. So yesterday, the National Unity Government uh, declared a revolt against the role of the military terrorists. Um, so we're not really sure exactly what is happening at the moment and how this will develop, but we did want to give that context for anybody who's listening uh, a little bit later. So um, you previously wrote a blog post um, titled... The Politics of Humanitarian Aid to Myanmar. And you wrote this um, almost exactly a year ago, actually, where you were reflecting on your experiences in Myanmar and and your field work and just some of the conversations that you've had with people, but as well what the, I guess we could say, ethics uh, are of, of even being in the country. And I will link to that blog post because it's really interesting to hear your reflections. And I think people could definitely apply that um, to other places as well. Um, but I just want to start, before we kind of touch on more about what the blog post touches on, I want to start with the question of how are humanitarian organizations and civil society responding to the current situation there? So Myanmar's uh, civil society is incredible. And I'm sure you could say that of civil society in very many places. But they, they have this incredible ability to maneuver in really extreme environments and they've showed this uh, since people like the world got their eyes up for Myanmar civil society with a devastating um, uh, cyclone Nargis in 2008 where humanitarian organizations were banned from getting into the field and doing their thing and the military government was unable to respond as well so Civil society really stepped up and went into the the field, brought the food, brought the shelters, brought the medicine, did the needs assessment, and did an incredible work work and grow grew uh, immensely uh, as a response to to this uh, tragedy and, and the aftermath of, of Cyclone Nargis. And then there was this reform period that we've had for the past decade, um, where they ad- again adapted to new realities. So um, using that opening space that the military had given to push for even more democratic space. But now in this sort of tragedy that follows the the coup, they're going back to the old strategies from before that reform period. So civil society, despite this really difficult situation, they are able now to distribute humanitarian aid uh, to the communities in need. Uh, using their old banking uh, systems or an exchange methods. You have to remember that Myanmar just a, a decade ago was more or less 100% cash-based society. So they go moving back to this informal structure and use their networks both inside Myanmar and out, outside Myanmar to distribute um, uh, funds, food, medicine, education, even healthcare. Because the, the healthcare system is, is down because it's um, a civil society, you know, it's a civil disobedient movement. So, so the, all these are kind of going underground again. 
and is more pressing now than ever, as you said, like it's likely now that we see an increase in tension and violence in the coming uh, days and weeks. And, and uh, now it's really pivotal that funders uh, and international INGO, so NGOs and humanitarian organizations find ways to go back to support these networks inside Myanmar and also in the border areas of Thailand, because they're these are really the true leaders of, of Myanmar, and they are holding this society up in, in this immense crisis. Hmm. So before I ask you um, more about, I guess, the, the people of Myanmar and on the ground, and, and you just alluded to that a little bit, um, I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different approaches that organizations have taken. Again, I'll link to the blog post because you get much more into detail about that, but you, you talk specifically about the Norwegian context because... Norway has been quite involved uh, in the area, and you had um, three examples. So you had the Norwegian Refugee Council, Norwegian People's Aid, and Norwegian Church Aid. And in your blog post, you discuss the three different approaches that they have. Um, So how are, I guess, civil society organizations uh, that are indigenous to Myanmar reacting, but also outside organizations reacting? Yeah, this was always the the challenge uh, in Myanmar, also in the in the previous military uh, rule, because the military really controls everything. They did before, and they do now, uh, and it's almost impossible to deliver aid to Myanmar without dealing with the illegitimate uh, rule in one way or the or the other. So there was always this negotiation about how how to get access. Should you engage with those illegitimate rulers uh, and oppressors to just get to the most in need? Or should you keep your uh, arm's distance and, and, uh, and, and try to, to reach the areas you could from cross-border? So there was this, um, uh, in the past, it was quite a heated debate. Uh, among humanitarian actors um, and a certain level of hostility even among these uh, organizations about choosing different strategies. So the cross-border operations along the Thai-Myanmar border would say, well, we can't work with civil society inside Myanmar because that means we have to deal with the military and and we can't do that. It's morally problematic. So, and the organization working within Myanmar would say, but cross-border can only reach that far. So there was always this really heated discussion. And what my research on the politics of humanitarian aid in Myanmar suggests is that despite these divides among humanitarian actors, in reality, um, the different strategies led to a division of labor between international organizations and their support um, to communities in Myanmar. And all along, I think we could say that the Myanmar civil society, whether inside or outside or cross-border, uh, was always and still is that kind of oil that keeps this machinery going and working despite grim circumstances. Yeah, because despite the very different approaches that they had, um, it seems like there was sort of a harmonious relationship uh to some extent i'm sure there's there's been some animosity on some topics as well but um the different approaches certainly have i guess pros and cons to each of them so because you wrote about these challenges previously and and how to aid the people of the area 
um, but trying not to at the same time uphold and, and support the regime. What kind of lessons do you think um, these organizations or people who work in these organizations can take currently from from the previous experience? Yeah, I think those involved at that time uh, would not look at it as very harmonious. <laughs> my my uh, my conclusion in my research is more that sort of despite the heated debate, mm. you had that uh, division of labor that that were that made uh, the local civil society and and local communities able to to respond to their uh, their difficult situations wherever they were. But I think the lesson is that um, there, there needs to be a lot of flexibility right now. So uh, no one wants to work with the military now. And, and no, no one inside Myanmar wants to work with the military now. And they might have want to do that past decade where there was ability to talk to them and, and they were op- sort of opening up a bit, but although very limited. But... But right now, um, there's not that environment for cooperation with the government, and nobody wants that. But there has to be a lot of flexibility uh, from donors in how they respond to the crisis. So, so now we we need to find back the way it operated in uh, in the period from Cyclone Argus 2008 until 2011. What how were we able to reach communities being inside uh, the country or cross border and for the uh, for the uh, international organizations also to to try to be less sort of convinced that their approach is the only one possible but rather try to find uh, ways to negotiate and and realizing that different organizations have different um approaches and also different goals that they want to. Uh, so, so some of the humanitarian organizations, they need to reach the most vulnerable. And some other advocacy organizations need to push for change and for human rights in, in, in Myanmar. But they have different, uh, they have different roles and, and they need to work together. Hmm. Well, I'm just going to round off with a final question because, of course, due to your your research and also personal interest in the area, you have have a lot of contacts there. And so I'm just wondering, um, do you think there's anything that isn't really necessarily coming through in the narratives lately that that people should know or, yeah, any kind of um, information that you would want to share, whether personal experiences that you've heard um, or or just observations that you've made based on your own research? Well, it's uh, it's been a very tough time for Myanmar now, not just with um, not just with uh, with the coup and, and the repression and the violence, but also COVID has had uh, has raged uh, over uh, Myanmar, and it's because of of the conflict also and then the uh, irresponsibility of the military that, that this is happening. And I think people now when they've lost so many of their dear ones and relatives in addition to this um brutality from the military they're just very very angry and they will be for a long time Hmm. so um when when there's um when we say that there's a there's um fear that there will be more violence this is a very good reason for that people are just extremely angry and they're not taking it anymore Thanks for picking for you.
is Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Creo, located in Norway. For more information, visit creo.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trick Music by Martha Nova.